My name is Dr. Michael Brown, and this is Three Words, a bite-sized podcast about the simple and strategic choices that all of us can make in order to become the very best version of ourselves. This today is Three Words on the Road, filming from Lewis, Delaware with my dear friend, CEO and president of Unique Venues, Chuck Salem. Take a road trip, check it out. Chuck, it is an honor and a privilege to be here in your beautiful home in Lewis, Delaware, to have a very informal and powerful conversation with my dear friend. What are our three words today? Take a road trip. Take a road trip. Now, my friend, you are the CEO and president of Unique Venues. You are in the events industry. Your dream is that people will take lots of road trips, yes? Lots of road trips, lots of road trips to see so many of the exciting places where people can meet and gather, yes. So what do you do with Unique Venues? Give us a big kind of picture of your role because as we talk about taking a road trip, we're gonna have this conversation and frame it around the idea of personally, Chuck Salem, as the man, as the human being, as my friend, as well as professionally, um, as the CEO and president, of unique venues. Great. And you know, when it comes to unique venues, there's really a dual purpose behind what we do. We have two very distinct clients. So one is to connect in a general sense, connect planners, people with unique, non-traditional meeting and event spaces. Hmm. So places that aren't your traditional hotel venues, places that aren't your traditional convention centers, but places that might be historical estates and mansions or stadiums and arenas, hmm college and university campuses, and so on. So we work with planners to help them find places that are unique. On the other side of the business, though, we really strive to be the indispensable marketing resource for, resource for the venues that we serve. So we work with a lot of venues whose primary mission is not necessarily meetings and events. Mm. So, for instance, a college and university campus really exists to provide for credit education to undergraduate and graduate students or a stadium an MLB stadium is for the purpose of providing entertainment through major league ball playing, right? Baseball playing. Of course. So because it's not their core mission, they don't necessarily, these venues don't always necessarily have the marketing support they need. Mm -hmm. So unique venues, in addition to providing a platform to make them, known in the industry mm -hmm. and people to be able to find them in the industry. Additionally, what we're doing is providing marketing agency style services to them. Okay. So that they have the support from someone who understands them. Well, and I love this because we met through unique venues, obviously working in a college and university campus. And we met almost 10 years ago, I think. I think it, at least. yeah. And it's been absolutely fantastic to be able to develop this long-term friendship with you. And obviously understanding the role of road trips in your business has been fascinating, but also getting to know you as a friend, uh, as a human being, as this extraordinary person who came from very little to now actually working for unique venues, then buying, purchasing <laughs> unique venues. You're now the president and the CEO. As you think about your life in the context of a road trip, what are some lessons you've learned? You know, I one of the reasons I picked the words take a road trip is because, in a sense, it's been quite a journey for me mm -hmm. to get to where I am at this point in my life. Um, you know, I, from a professional stance, what a, 
a lot of people may not realize is I worked at the University of Pittsburgh at a conference and event venue there okay. um, on their Johnstown, Pennsylvania campus. And I knew nothing, nothing about marketing and sales, nothing about being part of the events industry. Mm. I was a student affairs professional. And uh, one day, my supervisor, who recently passed away, and it is, actually was very heartbreaking to me mm. that, that he passed away, was, you know, he was very entrepreneurial in his thinking. And he said to me, Chuck, I want you to start a summer conference program here at the University of Pittsburgh at Johnstown. And I, you know, being myself, my nature is, sure, I can do that. I said, sure, I'll do that. And then I thought to myself, how do I do that? I don't know anything about this. Now, just indulge me for a second. Please. Because when I was in eighth grade, I got in trouble a lot. And I would be sent to the guidance counselor's office. Now, I'm almost 60 years old. So I would have to watch film strips. So many people don't even know what a film strip is. But I would go to the guidance counselor's office because one of the things they wanted you to do was to be able to, you know, kind of be guided towards being a professional when you got out of school. <laughs> so I always gravitated to the hospitality film strips, a hotel manager, mm. a restaurant manager. I would always get the film strips that were about that. Interestingly, I stepped away from that. I mean, mm. I watched those film strips. It was something I had a passion for. But when I went on to college, I never pursued anything in the hospitality industry. Interesting. I was the typical guy who changed my major three times from <laughs> right. pre-law pre to business to education. Mm -hmm. I, I have a teaching degree, and I've dipped my toe into cartography Oh, in wow. college. So I'm a map maker and a social studies teacher by trade. My goodness. So I knew nothing. I went on, got my master's degree in student affairs and higher education from Indiana University of Pennsylvania and worked in housing and residence life. And all of a sudden I'm being told, start this summer conference program. Wow. Okay. So this is 1989. Mm -hmm. There was no internet. There were no easy ways. There was, there was no book about running a summer conference program. Right, there, was, right, right. there were no resources. I didn't even know anyone who did it mm. because back in those days, not a lot of campuses did it. Right. So here I am tasked with something mm. and I started to build this program intuitively. I would read marketing articles um, using microfiche if you remember what that oh, was, I do. going into the I'm library. I'm not much younger. Than yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, going to the university library and looking up articles about marketing and, and reading them, uh, sitting in, in the library, photocopying our, you know, articles and reading. So it was myself mm. and one student worker trying to develop a program. And you did. And we had one office with one typewriter, one desk. Mm -hmm. We literally had a cardboard box that served as our second desk. And myself and the student employee took turns sitting at the desk or the box wow. to develop the program. And then here you are today. And here we are today. My goodness. And as I listen to you, Chuck, there's this, there's a couple things that come to mind. First of all, younger professionals or those who are ready to become entrepreneurs, they're thinking, I got to choose the perfect major. I need to know exactly what I'm going to do. But 
your major doesn't even necessarily connect to who you are. It's more about the qualities of your leadership and the qualities of you being this person that's before me today than actually the degree that you have. Would you agree with that? Yeah. So often we major in something and we decide to take a different direction and we feel like, oh, should we do that? Could we do that? Can we do that? I, you know, to me, when I look back on it, I'd like to say that I was, you know, intellectual enough to realize what I was doing at the time. But now I can see when I look back that what I really did was pursued a passion. Hmm. You know, I think that's what I really did because, you know, think back to the times I was sent to the office and in the guidance office in eighth grade, what was I doing? I wasn't looking at film strips about teaching or yeah. business or being a lawyer. I was watching film strips about being in the hospitality industry yeah. and I set it aside. Not sure what led to me setting it aside, mm. but I set it aside. So not only though, did you pursue your passion, but you also connected passion with proactivity because you said it, you would not be where you are today just because you followed your passion. You've worked so hard. I know you, you've been tireless, um, I'm sure at times you would even be self-described as a workaholic. Yeah, you know, for sure. <laughs> I think a lot of folks, me included, who have achieved a lot in life and who have risen, you know, professionally, we've had to work hard. And so it's not just following your passion, but you described it. You said the leader at your university said to you, can you do this? And you said, yeah. And you committed before you even had a plan. But so often it seems like in this younger generation, particularly as we're, and even in the first or second seasons of our life, we want to have the perfect plan. Before we pull the trigger, mm -hmm. we want to have the perfect strategy before we say yes to something. No, why not just dive in, try it, be adventurous. I mean, have you always been like this yeah. since the earliest of your, of your <laughs> life? I, I let, yeah, I, I'm going to say that the way my journey kind of plays out mm. is that I start the journey thinking I'm doing one thing and mm. all of a sudden I land someplace. I'm like, First of all, how did I get here? And wow, this is really cool. I like it. You know, yeah. so that's kind of, which is interesting as somebody with a cartography background, because I'm just like, you know, it should be a very intentional oh, trip yeah, that I took. Creating, and yeah. there was nothing intentional about what I did. Um, mm. you know, I, I think when I look back at my undergraduate career, you know, and I, hopefully there's some college students or high school students who might listen to this. Um, and I had the privilege of, being named um, uh, some an outstanding alumnus of the high school I graduated mm -hmm. from. And I had the opportunity to address their top 20 students oh my one goodness. year. That's awesome. Which is funny because I was not in the top 20 of my You were in the grad. guidance office getting I in was, trouble. Oh, I was not only in the guy, I was in the principal's office. Oh. <laughs> and sometimes I was home because I wasn't allowed to go to school. Oh. I was very, I was not the most well-behaved student. I some might say I had a really fun time. I think there could be, I don't know if you ever watched John Hughes movies like 16 Candles or Pretty in Pink. My, I think my time in high school could have been a John Hughes movie. Mm. I definitely had a good time and I definitely got caught and I definitely got in trouble and gave my mother a very challenging time raising me. But, you know, I think when I went to college, I got very, Determined. I became mm. very determined. I had some high school teachers who took me under their wing and said, Salem, that was the, what they always called me. Listen, Salem, you have a lot of potential and you're wasting it. You're getting mm. in trouble. You're not focusing on the things you should. And you're going to get 
your act together and we're going to help you. One of my teachers, his name was Mike Butelowski, everybody called him B, uh, gave me a piece of paper one day at one of my disciplinary hearings with his phone number. And all it said is, when you're ready to talk, call me. Wow. And he and his wife spent a lot of time with me and helping me to refocus my life. Um, but wait, you called him then. So you I actually took the initiative. Him. What it prompted, took a whole year. Okay. I so what him. I was going to say, what prompted you to a year later to pick up the phone and say, it's time to make this phone call? Um, you know, I think I kind of got to a point where I realized that I was becoming a person I didn't necessarily want to be, mm. you know, I mean, when I really thought about what I hope and dreamed for myself, my pathway wasn't getting me anywhere near there. Mm. You know, my pathway was more getting me to like, you know, you're going to waste your life here. You're going to wow. be so you're not going to maximize. You're not going to self actualize mm. any of those things. Your, your life is becoming very um, down a very dark path. I wow. mean, drugs, to be honest, okay. I, you know, I mean, nothing heavy, but you know, I mean, I smoked a lot of marijuana. I drank a lot of alcohol. Mm. I got in a lot of mischief. Um, it was really challenging and I was artful with it. I mean, my mother, while I think she probably knew that I was always mm. getting into a little bit of trouble, the degree to which I was getting into trouble, she never really understood because I was very artful at dodging the consequences. Right. But yet you reach those points in your life where you were humble enough to say, this is not who I want to be. Right. And I'm going to pick up the phone and call this mentor and his wife and begin to have some conversations. What, what was that conversation like? like? And I think it was because I, I think he believed in me and that was kind of cool knowing that somebody believed in me. Was that kind of like, I think I was basically just like, I'm ready to talk. And what was his advice to you? Hmm. Or what did that so he was very like? direct. <laughs> um, Ooh, I love you this. know. So it, you know, s you know, ed the education system in the seventies was really different than the education system today. So what we, you know, he was very forthright with me with very direct, tough love talk. You know, Salem, you have to get your stuff together. <laughs> but he didn't say stuff. <laughs> no, he did not say stuff. He did not say stuff at all. And he, um, but you took it, you, 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 you owned it, you I, absorbed it, you changed. Well, he started doing things, you know, now that I think about it, I think he was really strategic in what he was doing. He of gave course. me responsibility. Okay. I cut his grass. He paid me to cut his grass. Um, and that was really kind of cool, mm -hmm. you know, and he brought me into his home life some, you know, not that I, I had a home life in my own right. home, but it was different. You know, I, mm. I came from a single parent home. My mother worked all day. I had a lot of responsibility in addition mm. to all my partying and getting in trouble. I was the one making dinner for the family every oh, wow. night, cleaning the house every day. So I was managing a house because my mother was working all day. Right. So I had a lot of responsibility and I remember I had a pattern every day and he really helped me change my pattern. My pattern, as embarrassed as it is to say, is he got up every morning, got in the car to go with my friends to school, partied in the parking lot. Oh, my goodness. Went to school, partied the second I got out of school, went home, did my chores, did my homework, made dinner. And as soon as it was over, I went out and partied all night, seven nights a week. Oh, that's what I did. That was my word. life. 
And he really worked with me to teach me about responsibility. So by the time I was 16, I embraced responsibility. I literally had three jobs when I was 16 years old. Okay, here we go. Three jobs. And this generation of 16-year-olds are thinking, I got to find a job where I can stand there and just be on my phone and get paid to do nothing. Uh, (laughs) It's a different generation. (laughs) I had three jobs. I would go to school. Like as I began to turn my Mm -hmm. life around, I would go to school. And then right after school, I would drive down to the mall. There was a brand new shopping mall that was right down the street from the school I went to. And I would work. There was a women's clothing store called Ormond. And my job, I was their stock boy. Okay. So I worked there from three to five every day. I would vacuum the floors. I would hang all of the new stock that came in. Once in a while, my uh, my supervisor at the time, whom I'm very close fl- friends with right now, uh, still to this day, her name's Missy. She used to make me do this thing called edging. I mean, I don't know how many kids these days would do this, but I got on my hands and knees in a very large store with an edging tool for crawling under clothes and making sure there was no dust on anywhere on the edge of the floor against the baseboards of the store. I did that. Wow. Get shipments ready. Then at five o'clock, I would change into nicer clothes, Mm. clean up, walk across the hall to Tom McCann. And I sold shoes at Tom McCann, Tom McCann until the mall closed. And back in those days, the mall closed at 10, 9.30 or 10. So I would work. And it's interesting. I was always the highest salesperson there. Um, I always did really well with sales. Of course you were. (laughs) Um, And, you know, I didn't like the cheesy way I had to sell. I knew very, very early that I had to be genuine in sales, Mm -hmm. you know, because at Tom McCann was like, take this pair out. If it's a dress shoe, always have a tennis shoe pair behind you and suggest they also buy a casual shoe. And I was like, okay, that's cheesy. I'm not doing that. Right. So I would just have a general casual conversation with them and, and sell. And I did really well. Then when the mall closed, I would put back on my scrubby clothes that I wore to do the stock boy work at Ormond. And I went to a place called the yogurt hut. Oh my goodness. And at 10 o'clock at night, I cleaned all of the yogurt machines from that day, Chuck Salem, a couple days a week. So that was when I started getting more serious. You know, I still had fun, but I, it was balanced with responsibility. Um, I think the other thing that kicked in for me was I remember being called to the guidance office in high school mm. and I was told by my guidance counselor, again, it was not, it was Charles then Charles. And she said to me, mm what are your plans when you graduate from high school? And I said, I want to go to the university of Pittsburgh, maybe Syracuse. She, she laughed at me and scoffed and said, Charles, you're not college material. You might want to think about going to junior college or business college, Interesting. which is nothing wrong with junior college or business college, but she dismissed my dreams. Mm. And that motivated the living daylights out of me. I mean, I do not like to be told I can't do something that I know I can do. Oh, I've known you long enough to know that's true. Now, I'm okay if somebody says, Chuck, there is no way you are going to climb Mount Everest. I'm like, you are right. I am (laughs) never going to climb Mount Everest. But I don't like to be told I can't do something that I know I can do. So I ended up graduating um, from high school and did go to a regional campus of the University of Pittsburgh. And eventually graduated from Pitt. Um, but, you know, all, all of my responsibility was, you know, I think 
Mike Budalowski was really instrumental in that. Mm-hmm. And I, I still love him and respect him to this day. Well, and you gave two examples. You know, Mike, a mentor who believed in you mm-hmm. and inspired you, spoke candidly and directly to you. Your guidance counselor in high school who said, you don't have what it takes. Yep. You're not, mo- well, in many ways, you're motivated by both. Mm-hmm. You're motivated to be inspired, but also when someone says to you, Chuck, you can't, you will. And in many ways, I mean, that's been true from your earliest years of life. I've known you long enough. We've talked a lot about your childhood, but mm-hmm. you had a challenging childhood. You, yeah, definitely. You, you give us some pieces there, but you were able to balance the responsibility, even at a young age, with mm-hmm. some of the some of the the turbulence and the the partying and all such things in, in your life. Um, wow, I, I would imagine your mom would be very proud. Um, I think she would be. I yeah. think she would. It was, you know, my mom was. It was funny. You know, I can think back to my mom and my mom had a country club mentality, but we lived a very poor life. Mm. It was interesting. Um, so, And how old was she when you passed? How old were you when, when she, she passed? passed. Yeah. Um, so she passed in 2011. Okay. And she was 86, I believe, wow. when she passed away. And my mom was an incredible woman. So mm. my mom was... Um, at the top of her class at East Connemaw High School, a little small high school in Pennsylvania, okay. in the town of Johnstown. Fascinating. And but she grew up in a time and in a family where, in in the days that she graduated, which I want to say was like 1942 or 44 or something like that, she was not allowed to go to college. She was offered a scholarship to Juniata College, which is a very good private college in Pennsylvania. But her parents told her she couldn't go. I think that her trajectory in life would have been extraordinarily different had her parents allowed her to pursue what she wanted to pursue. Because I think my mother, um, we always laugh because she was like the family doctor for the extended family. (laughs) Anytime somebody was sick, they called my mother. My mother's passion was to be in the healthcare industry. Mm. And she pursued her passion. You know, she ended up working for the United Mine Workers in their black lung division. And then she ended up being the business manager without an undergraduate degree, a business manager of a series of urgent care centers. Wow. So, you know, she, in a sense, lived her dream. Yeah. Though I think her ultimate dream, she should have been and could have been the best doctor out there. Um. My favorite story about my mother, our son, Corey, who actually works for Unique Venues, I remember one time he wanted me to check his algebra homework. Now, mind you, this would have been in 2008. So my mother was like 83 years old dealing with a terminal illness that impacted her memory. And he was doing the, his algebra homework at her house and I was visiting her and he asked me to check his algebra homework. And I, I kind of laughed. I'm like, seriously, like, <laughs> Is there a way to check it in the back of the book? Because I, I don't remember how to do algebra yeah, at all. I'm with it you. wasn't I'm with something you. <laughs> I retained. I was like, no, no. And she said, I'll check it for you. And she said, Corey. It was funny. It was really, I mean, I look back and smiling as I think about it. She goes, Corey. Yeah, she goes, Corey, there's several of these are wrong. And she was right. They were wrong. He reworked them. He redid them because my mother at 83 was mm. still had all the wherewithal to check his algebra homework. 
My goodness. Yeah. Now you mentioned her terminal illness, but I know also that illness has been a part of your life. Uh, I just learned off camera today and we've known each other for 10 years. You, you hinted to potential conversations we might have, but did you battle cancer as well? I did battle cancer. I did. Um, if I may ask, can you tell us more about that? Yeah. Yeah. It was and how that's how that shaped you. It was, yeah, it was in 2010. My, my, uh, father, um, was diagnosed years before decades before with prostate cancer. And, um, so because of that, starting at age 40, I would have annual checkups for mm-hmm. prostate cancer. And I remember it was 2010 cause that's the year our youngest Corey graduated from high school. And I remember going for my annual checkup and my doctor, who's also a friend of mine, okay. um, his name's Dr. David Carney, is a wonderful, wonderful friend and physician. But he um, he said, let's do a PSA test before you go. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, do we have to do that now? I'm like, <laughs> you know, I got to go run to a because it takes the results will be here in minutes because he was able to actually do the results in his office. So he did it and he came in and he said, you know, your PSA is elevated. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, it's not real high, but it went from this number to this number in a really quick time. So I think we had to schedule a biopsy. I doubt there'll be anything wrong, but I think we had to schedule a biopsy. I'm like, sure, sure. Went for the biopsy. And I remember getting the phone call. And here's how I remember getting the phone call. It was a really difficult day. And I'm not even sure my kids know this, but it was the day my son graduated from high school Hmm. at about 4.50 PM. I was going to be leaving at five, going to his high school graduation ceremony. And the doctor's office called and I just thought it was going to be a routine call. And he said, Chuck, I don't, I don't know how to tell you this, but you have prostate cancer. Hmm. And I remember this feeling coming over me. It was just, so two things happened. I guess I can look back and think two things happened. I'm a fight or flight guy and I am a fight. I am not a flight. I'm a fight. (laughs) And my fight immediately kicked in. But simultaneously, I felt something like the thought in my mind that there was like, I felt like there was something very foreign, something very alien in my body. And I just wanted it out. So it was like, I'm going to fight this. I'm going to figure this out. And I want it out fast. Mm. So I went to his graduation party and I don't know what it's like in Ohio, but in Pennsylvania, what happens is, you know, you graduate from high school, you head to the beach the day after you graduate. So that night after graduation or the next day, Corey left. That's my son. He left. Our other kids were living somewhere else Mm -hmm. at the time. So I called my sister who has a beach house. She was the only person I told. Called my sister as a beach house and said, is is there anybody there? This is what happened. I just found this out. I just need to get away for a few days. She said, it's open. I went. Bought any book I could find at the bookstore at the mall about prostate cancer packed them up, packed my bag, didn't tell any of my kids what had happened. And I drove and I sat at the beach for a week. Reading, studying, breathing, relaxing, reading, and setting my fight plan up. Wasn't my game plan. This is not a game plan. It was my fight. It was my fight plan. I mean, I am seriously, you know, I can almost feel my senses again, rising about how I felt. I'm like, there is no way. 
this has taken me down. Have there been other things in your life where you felt like, Chuck, I need a fight plan for this as well? Oh, yeah. Talk to us about that. Give me a few more. I've had a lot of this. Because (laughs) my listeners and those who are viewing this right now, like oftentimes they're thinking I need a game plan. But I love how you've kind of reframed this as what are those areas that you need to fight through, Mm -hmm. fight, step into? Because adversity is adrenaline. I mean, mm-hmm. and we've, you and I've talked a lot about this idea that pain is our friend, yeah. but what are some of those other areas where you're like fight plane? Cause you are a fighter. So two come to mind, there's a lot of them, but okay. two really kind of magnanimous things that happened. Um, actually three, I'm going to say, please. Um, one was coming out of the closet. Mm. Talk about a fight. The fight was with myself, mm. never really anything external. But coming to terms with the reality of who I am as a human being and the cost to others to live an authentic life Mm. and having to make the decision to either live an authentic life or cause sadness, hurt, or pain Mm. is a really difficult decision to make. And I think, you know, times are different now. Um, even since 2008, when I came out of the closet, but, um, it it was difficult and it's funny. I still look back on it now. Um, here it is, you know, 13 years later Mm -hmm. since I came out of the closet and the reality of it is sometimes I still have heart pangs and sadness Mm -hmm. about things I had to give up in order to be authentically me. But then I can look at the things that I've gained. But that was a fight, and the fight was really internal with me more than it was an external fight. Wow. And then the second one that I would say was buying unique venues. That was more a transactional fight of my life because it took a year. And it's interesting because trying to buy a company when – a, it's it's a company that's a, an online-based company. We don't have a factory somewhere. Right. We don't have big offices somewhere. So, you know, you go to try to get financing to buy a company, no matter how healthy the company is, they want tangible assets. Mm-hmm. So they didn't look at a website or, you know, a thousand venues that you do marketing for on that website as tangible. Mm-hmm. Um So really, and then document upon document and letting people into every single angle of our lives, you know, those small business administration, the banks, you know, all of those things, um, while running the business, while maintaining confidentiality for a whole year, I couldn't tell anyone Mm -hmm. what we were doing, you know, so there was a confidentiality agreement. And that does make sense. So it was really challenging because we were short staffed. Unfortunately, one of our staff members who's incredibly valuable, Lisa Morrell, was going through her own challenges in her life and she was working part time. And Mm. I think we were down another staff member. So I was working so hard, but it was a daily full time job just to buy the company. So I'd say that that was the second. The third one. Surviving COVID. As a company, we talked a lot during this. Pandemic. That it's been hard. Was an incredibly f- big fight. 
because we're talking about taking a road trip during a time when no one was taking road trips. And that's not just personal for you. That's professional because when people aren't taking road trips, unique venues is suffering. Right. And and my personal road trip and leading the company through COVID felt a lot of times like I was on a cliffside road without a guardrail, Hmm. winding down a bumpy road at night without lights. That's what it felt like oftentimes. That intense. It was that intense. It was, I'm going to say it was the most challenging fight of my life. Um, to the point that when we finally got to a point where I could start to see some light at the end of the tunnel, that I'd almost say I might have experienced just a little bit of, this might be a dramatic term, but P- some PTSD from it. I was burned out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was I can't tell you how many times I heard stories and it actually gives me a lump in my throat when I think about it, mm-hmm. that I heard stories from people who had worked in the industry for so long, mm-hmm. who lost their jobs, venues that had existed for decades that had to close their doors. You know, there was, it wasn't like, you know, I think a lot of people can relate to this. It wasn't like you went to work during COVID if you were in one of the most, you know, deeply impacted industries like we are. Because it wasn't just me. I don't want this isn't about me. This is our industry. This yeah. is I mean, there are a lot of people I think who can relate to how I felt, right? The, the hotels, the destination. Yeah, even, all kinds oh. of places. I mean, it rarely was there a day you went in and got good news it seemed to like escalate mm-hmm. every day. Another person lost their job. And you, you know, there's this thing, you know, these cultural archetypes, right. And there are personal archetypes and there are corporate archetypes. My personal archetype is a very strong quote unquote hero, which means I want to go in and make mm-hmm. things better. I want to fix things. And so my natural disposition is to want to go in and help people and let's make this better. And we're going to do this. So you couple that with all of the news you're hearing while you're also watching your business decline, our business Mm -hmm. declined significantly. Yeah, for sure. Um, And so one of the things we learned about in our retreat with you, Michael, I mean, I, you know, our team had one of the most valuable retreats we ever had when we met with you and you led us through a retreat up in Beaver Hollow uh, Conference Center in, uh, in New York. We talked about the concept of Tamley and we still use that term today. So we're a team and we're family and probably my greatest struggle was to make sure that the 14 people who were employed by unique venues remained mm-hmm. employed gainfully so that they still had a positive family life, that they never had to worry about putting food on the mm-hmm. table. So I was juggling, you know, I want to make sure the clients are great. I want to make sure that we keep people engaged with all these webinars. I want to make sure our staff is fully employed. Um, whatever it takes, I'm going to do it. And so, at the end of maybe it was around May when Neil and I relocated here to Delaware, I think mentally and emotionally, I felt like somebody had just rung me out. And for about a month, I had a really tough time. It was a struggle. It was, it was a, an emotional struggle for me. I just felt mentally exhausted, 
for a month. And there were times where we didn't connect as much during that time as we typically would. Mm -hmm. And even in retrospect, it's because when you are in that kind of like dark spot, you just want to go into a cave. And I kept trying to pull you out of that cave. Talk, let's interact. (laughs) How are you? You know? Um, But I think there's, is those who are listening and viewing us today in this particular conversation, the, the whole world's going to relate to this, this yeah. idea that this was hard. Oh yeah. I mean, this was so hard. And for many, they're still feeling even unique venues is feeling it. You're coming out of that darkness, but we're still feeling with new variants and all that's going on. I'm not sure people might be listening to this 10 years from now and think well, pandemic is a, what, what's a variant. What was, what was the big <laughs> deal? Right. But um, what I'm loving hearing from you. And again, I'm going to, I'm going to, bring it up a little higher level, this idea that you are a driven, fighting, um, passionate leader who also cares deeply about people, Mm -hmm. who is empathetic, who is compassionate. I mean, and that's really, I feel like the, the kind of like talk about archetype of a great leader in general. I mean, you are that leader because you are out there, visionary, working hard, dreaming, but also deeply caring. Like we need more leaders like you in this world. And I want to talk a little bit about you as a leader. And even just, you know, we're sitting in this beautiful home. It's your dream home in, in Lewis, Delaware. And I want you to help me draw a line. Lessons learned, struggles overcome, challenges faced. From the days of working, selling shoes at Tom McCann and cleaning yogurt machines at the yogurt bus. The yogurt hut. The yogurt (laughs) hut. (laughs) I mean, imagine like the line from there to here. We sit here in your home Mm -hmm. that you built and you designed. And this is like your retirement home for the future, right? And this is where you want to be and you've loved it here. And I love being, that's why it's so fun taking three words on the road to be in your space with my friend. Um qualities, characteristics, lessons, because those who are listening in, in many ways, don't want to necessarily be you, Mm -hmm. but they want to be like you and they want to achieve what you've achieved (laughs) and they want to experience the, the incredible life, both the ups and downs. So talk to our viewers, talk to those who are, who are tuning in today, lessons, principles, things that have been a part of your journey that would be just helpful for others who want to do similar things, Mm -hmm. meaning grow a business build a life, such things. Yeah. And I'm actually kind of sorry that from, that I did not mention actually the greatest challenge I had in my life. Okay. There's one I didn't share with you. And again, so I'm the the hero archetype. Uh So people know all of the good stuff about my life. I think people who've known me for years know that I was always, you know, noted for having pictures of my kids ready to show anybody and everybody at every conference yes. or gathering. Well, when I sat here, you're like, here's all the pictures. Yeah, I just, I just <laughs> did. I'm very proud of my children. They were just the most amazing. My, my kids and grandkids, they're my heart, but I lost a daughter. So most people don't know. I'm not the hero archetype talks about the good things. So very few people know about the cancer. Very few people know, you know, we have a daughter who died of osteogenesis imperfecta. Her name's Hannah, Hannah Nicole Salem. And that was such a challenge. And, you know, the stuff, you know, keeping the company alive. And you even mentioned we didn't really talk. And that's because it's not in my DNA to share when things are struggles. I just kind of do that. 
I think it's because, you know, I was kind of left to my own kind of fix it, you know, mm-hmm. until B came, then Mike Badalowski came along and really supported me. And I felt like I had somebody that was on my side and ready to kind of cheer me on and, 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 and succeed. But what I can really think back on and how I got to where I am is that at no point, so maybe it's not fight and flight as much as it is. I'm going to grab the bull by the horn kind of person. Not mm-hmm. sure where they came from. I think probably my mom. I mean, think about yeah. the adversity my mom had. I think I was one when my father and mother separated mm-hmm. and my mother was left to raise four children, put four children through college. My my father, as much as I don't want to disrespect him, was a very absent father. He lived far away from us. We might have seen him. I actually remember I was five years old in kindergarten, and I don't know why I remember this. I guess things that are deeply impacting sometimes stay with oh, you. Oh, for sure. But I remember my kindergarten teacher telling me my father was there to pick me up, and I said, I don't have a I, – I said, I don't have a father. I don't – you know, and I got into a car with some guy who was my father, Um you know, and I would see maybe once a year for a very short time. So, you know, my mother really was a hundred percent the person, you know, who raised us. And so my thing is, and it's a natural thing for me, it comes naturally for me, is I'm a fighter. I grab the bull by the horn, and I do not regret my journey at all. Hmm. I wish our daughter Hannah had never passed away and that she would be forever in, in with us here. Of course. Um, You know, I wish there was never a pandemic. I wish that, you know, this and that, but the truth of the matter is I learned something along each and every stop I make in life. Mm. And I also use those as encouragement I often tell myself, you've dealt with losing a child. You can deal with COVID. You've had cancer. You survived cancer. You could survive this. Those are the things that motivate me in life. And I don't ever regret what happened. I don't know what I'd be like had they not happened. Yeah. You know, and I really kind of like where I'm at. Um, you love where you're at. <laughs> I love her. So I always say, yeah. um, I have the perfect life for as imperfect as it is. I actually believe I, I live my best life, mm-hmm. even though it has challenges. And you know what? Life isn't without challenges. I'm not even quite sure what it would feel like. Yeah. I mean, do we just get numb? Do we, do we become robotic to everything being good? You know, well, I, I think mean, we coast and I think we're yeah. mediocre. I'm I not think a coaster. Yeah. Even it, though I live near the coast. <laughs> <laughs> well, mediocrity tends to be our default. Um, pain and challenges and adversity disrupt our lives, but you're doing it. You're doing the very thing that we always talk about. And that's when you look back you can be like, this is how it has been such a positive thing. Mm-hmm. And this is how it has shaped me. And this is, I mean, you even said, I mean, you would not be the person you are um, without these things. And, and I'm guessing everyone watching and listening today, we can all relate to your story, Chuck, because we are imperfect. Oh, yeah. Oh, my goodness. We all are imperfect. 
we all have been mischievous oh, <laughs> in yeah. our own way. I might have coded that a little bit, by the way. It might have <laughs> been a little I mean, bit there's worse. There's so but. <laughs> many, you know, there's, there, as human beings and as humankind, there's such diversity among us and yet such common ground, such similarities. Um, and, and in many ways, we're all on this, we're all on a road trip. Mm-hmm. And so uh, if I may, if I can even share and begin to turn the corner and begin to kind of bring some closure to uh, my, my conversation with my dear friend, mm. my dear friend Chuck Salem is, is this, is that we want to encourage you, if you're listening today, to take a road trip. Literally, life is short. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no certainty. And so do that thing that you've been wanting to do or or take that trip you've been wanting to take or go on that adventure that you've been wanting to plan, but also to pull back the lens and think about your life as a road trip, that there's going to be times when you're going to maybe have a fender bender, maybe going to have to get off and take a break, or you need a rest area. I mean, there's so many images that come to mind, but I think for all of us to realize as human beings that we're all on a road trip, that's very unique to us, that Every road trip is different, and yet there's such similarities between all of us as human beings. Whether you are a Chuck Salem, the president and CEO of Unique Venues, or whether you're just beginning college, or maybe you're halfway through your professional career saying, what next? What now? I love this idea that I want to be driven, that I want to be full of effort and energy, but also deeply empathetic compassionate with human beings and remembering what is most important in life. Chuck, thank you for reminding me again today of what is most important and how sacred is everyone's story. And, and while your pain has shaped you and while my pain has shaped me, while your past has shaped you and my past has shaped me, neither of those things define us. Exactly. We get to chart our own course. We get to, even in the midst of pandemics mm-hmm. and COVID and things that are beyond our control, we still get to make decisions to build a life that we're proud of. Not just professionally taking a road trip, but personally committing to being on this road trip together. It's been an honor, my friend. Thank you. Thank you. I feel the same. I appreciate you. For life coaching, consulting services, or to hire a keynote speaker, please visit dmbcoaching.com.